China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Barnchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Kerry Kaysen, an Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. Today we'll be discussing her research on how Beijing attempts to inculcate popular legitimacy through patriotic education. Carrie, thanks for joining the podcast. My pleasure. So I wanted to start out by asking an intellectual biography question. How did you come to focus on your current research trajectory? And I think specifically your work, including your book project right now, is looking at patriotic or political education in authoritarian systems. So what were the questions that first piqued your interest here? And I think as a follow-up, what are the outstanding questions that still keep you interested in this topic? Sort of the impetus of this this project was really by accident. I was in China in a friend's kitchen and was talking to her 15-year-old son, who was studying for the National College Entrance Exam, which is called the Gaokao. And at that point in the afternoon, he was studying for the politics section of it and was kind of memorizing questions, making flashcards. And as a political scientist, I asked him, so, okay, you know, I study politics. I think I understand it. And so he was giving me some sample test questions from previous exams. And I failed all of them and thought, okay, this is an interesting topic. And later that day, you know, I, he, he gave me sample uh, Gaokao exams of, from the politics, you know, from 10, 20 years. And I started looking at them and thinking more systematically of, you know, what is the political knowledge? What does political science look like within the Chinese context? What does the the Chinese government want young people to know, to internalize? And how is that dramatically different than what I learned or what I teach in my own political science classes? And so that initial dinner table discussion has now expanded into looking at political or patriotic education in a comparative sense, right? So you're now not only looking at China, but Russia as well, correct? Correct. I mean, it's it's really driven by this this question of how do you know the assumption that all states use their educational systems in some ways to build support for the nation for the regime and in and essentially what better investment in the survival of autocratic rule is there in 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 teaching young people support for the leaders the political system the economic system etc. And so really thinking about the ways in which education in particular is is training and socializing young people in in some ways to be supportive of the regime. I should just say at the outset that the paper that we'll be discussing today comes from a volume that you co-edited called Citizens in the State in Authoritarian Regimes, Comparing China and Russia, which is an, an absolutely excellent volume. It was published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. So I'll be drawing my questions on that, but just to flag for listeners that we should all be waiting expectantly for Carrie's book, which hopefully is coming out soonish, as soon as you finish writing it, but under the working title for now, at least, of Learning to be Loyal, Patriotic Education in Authoritarian Regimes. But as an intermediary step, I, I highly recommend folks go get the OUP volume, which is just a, a really excellent overview of a lot of important political trends in, in Russia and China. Before we dive into looking at authoritarian systems and more specifically China, I wanted to ask you a level set question, which is, and you flagged this early on in your paper, in thinking about 
a political education curriculum or patriotic education curriculum, one that is attempting to help bolster, support, underpin citizen support for a regime. And I use that term regime in a non-pejorative sense, but just to say the governing authority. You helpfully flag that this, this isn't a unique phenomenon, generally speaking, to authoritarian systems. And this is not to say we're nihilists and don't see the difference between the two. But I, I wanted to ask you at, at a, as a level set question, can you explain for listeners just political education more broadly and how this, this is found across regime types? So political education or patriotic education is nothing new, and it's nothing unique to the autocratic world. It is in democracies, just as it is, is present in dictatorships. In terms of it not being new, historically, Plato, Aristotle all talked about the role of schools and the role of education in particular in building support or cementing support for those who rule for the idea that what we learn early on in life is supposed to stay with us. And so in democracies, we think for support for the political system, this takes place in civic education courses, which many of us were exposed to in grade school and in high school. And in civics, we learn about government processes, institutions. We learn the guidelines of political awareness and behavior. Like it's important to vote, to join a political party. And essentially, civics classes sort of set the parameters of what it means to be an active and engaged democratic citizen. So, you know, scholars of, of civics talk about civics as the guardians of democracy. What I'm studying is kind of the flip side of that. In non-democracies, civics is also present, but it tends to be called political or patriotic education. So it's integral components to the educational system, but we tend to dismiss it as indoctrination or propaganda, something normatively quite bad. But there's really some striking similarities with what's going on in civics courses. Both are teaching political knowledge, the building blocks of what it means to be a good and active citizen, the skill set for responsible citizenship. So in political education courses, they may not be encouraging young people to vote, but to be obedient to the state, to, to respect authority. And so there are some striking parallels between what we all learned in our civics education courses within democracies and what is taking place within and across the autocratic world. Could you help explain where the demarcations might be found then between a democratic system, which has civic education and an authoritarian system. Is it just a matter of, as you were saying, one is about teaching or at least inculcating loyalty specifically to the regime versus civics education, it seems, is a more abstract attempt to inculcate support for the underlying system. But where do you see the demarcation line between the two? In, in terms of demarcation line, some of you could say the basics of what's taking place in civics and political education is strikingly similar. So just as a young student in the state of Indiana has to say the Pledge of Allegiance every Monday morning, you would have children every Monday morning in, in Chinese primary schools standing for a large flag raising ceremony where the whole school gathers together in this sort of combined symbolic ritual. And so these types of shared rituals are present in both. I think where they differ in terms of is, is the content. And so a civics class may teach a young person, particularly in democracies, the importance of joining a political party, voting, being active and engaged within the democratic political system. Within a political education course, it's not about voting. It may be support for the institutions of the state, support for the party, support for the leadership. So a much more, you know, respect authority, follow the rule of law, respect the party, respect the constitution. And to be sure, those themes are all 
also present to some extent within civics education courses because they're both transmitting political knowledge. But you could say the outcome of uh, is slightly different within a political education course. So focusing now to authoritarian or autocratic systems, and actually first as, a, as, a, as another level set, is there a difference in how you use the term between political and patriotic education, or are they interchangeable for our purposes here? I think for our purposes, they're interchangeable. And I use them in my research interchangeably. Some countries, some autocratic regimes prefer the term political education. So in China, China, they talk about political and ideological education. Within the Russian context, they talk about patriotic education. But during the Soviet period, it was political education or military education. And so there's lots of names for very similar, similar topics. Some autocratic regimes also use the language of civic education. So in Singapore, they teach civics. They don't teach political or patriotic education. Six months ago, former President Trump talked about encouraging patriotic education and encouraging that within U.S. primary schools. So moving away from civics and a shift to, to patriotic education. So in some cases, they're interchangeable, at least the way that I'm using them, political and patriotic. Yeah, when I heard the announcement of that patriotic education plan from the Trump administration at the same time that they were pushing a pretty aggressive line on China because of its its stark ideological differences with, with our values here. I wondered if any one of his China analysts went down the hall and just told him that they may want to rebrand the patriotic education plan just to give it some daylight. Can you talk now, um, and again, I'm still lingering in the first few pages of, of your article, what is more narrowly speaking the function of political education to an authoritarian regime? You had some really great analysis, I thought, here about what it does to socialize, but also what it does to communicate expectations that the regime has uh, for citizens. But can you unpack that a little bit more if a group of authoritarian leaders is sitting down and designing a, a curriculum that will be rolled out universally? What are they hoping to accomplish at a, at a more abstract sense with this curriculum update? So I think political education is doing a couple of things. Number one, most basically, it's transmitting political knowledge, kind of the nuts and bolts of the political institutions, that young people can identify them and that they should also respect them. So understanding how in China the National People's Congress works and why this is an important political institution. It's also about stimulating support for these institutions and the economic policies or the specific leaders of the political system. So in China, support for the party, support for the current leadership, Xi Jinping. And sort of the overarching goal here is to create stakeholders in the system across generations so that young people across a very diverse country like China, but other autocracies, they all share the same political knowledge. They all have been taught roughly the same things. And that travels across generations. So this kind of vertical and horizontal linkages. Another way we can think about political education is, you know, political scientists who study autocracies spend a lot of time thinking about the repressive tools that a regime may use. So coercion, repression, bribery in order to keep the public in line or to keep citizens in check. Political education works in tandem with those repressive tools, but it's an instrument of persuasion. It's about sort of having people, you know, winning hearts and minds, having young people and future elites as well buy into the political system with the larger goal of sort of preempting the volume and type of challenges stemming from society or abroad. So if you teach in, in an autocratic regime that we are, you know, this authoritarian regime is democratic to its core, and you teach young people that this is a kind 
kind of democracy, an ideal form of democracy, which is very different than Western forms of democracy or capitalist forms of democracy, the idea is it will sort of preempt domestic challenges for perhaps, you know, pushing for democratic change. So to just return quickly to a point you just made, and I think you used the phrase, it's an insurance policy, patriarch education, but maybe to rephrase it. So instead of a crisis response model this is a prophylactic measure to some extent to get to citizens early and to begin to build or inculcate a, a socialization or a regime support. Is that correct? Precisely right. I mean, when we think about political education or patriotic education, it is an investment. It is a long-term, it is an expensive tool that begins in primary school and goes in many autocratic regimes through university and postgraduate education. And so this investment tool, precisely as you said, is, is insurance. And autocrats pay these expensive premiums in the hopes that they will never need it. But that political education or patriotic education will kick in when other measures fail, when they can't use repression, when they don't have the resources to bribe. This idea we're heavily investing in political education and we take it seriously so that in the event of a future crisis, we have full coverage. Now, more specifically, I want to talk about China, but I'll do that by first quoting Lenin, which is you've got a really good quote here from Lenin, which says the school not only must be a leader of communist principles in general, but also a guide of ideological, organizational and educational influence of the proletariat. So in other words, there's a long history between communist states and their educational systems. I wonder if you could give us a, an overview of patriotic education in China. As I was saying before we started taping, I have really only associated this quite strongly with the post Tiananmen Square period. But as you write, this this goes back really to the earliest days of the party. So could you take us up to maybe the the just briefly the the founding of the CCP in 1921 to kind of the eve of Tiananmen Square? Because I'd like to linger on Tiananmen Square for a moment, both in terms of what it taught the party and what the subsequent trajectory of political education was. But sort of 1921 to June 3rd, 1989, what did patriotic education look like and how is it utilized and deployed? So before the Communist Party came to power, when they were the underdog, when they were, you know, regrouping in parts of rural China, we began to see political and patriotic education sort of emerging in these rural bases. And so just as they were teaching literacy within villages in rural China, they're teaching literacy through the lens of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism to, to some extent. And so you're, you know, rather than sort of the, the primers that young people in the U.S. learn to read, whether those are Bob books or Dick and Jane books that I learned or Dr. Seuss books, young people uh, and folks living, uh, not necessarily only young people, but anyone living in rural China at this point, how they're learning to read, how they're learning to write is through, in many ways, political materials, whether these are speeches from Lenin or reports from Mao as well. So in these rural bases, when you think about the educational tools that were used. It was very ideological. Once the Communist Party comes to power, within a few short years, we see this heavy institutionalization and you could see even a standardization of political education. So beginning in first grade, Chinese young people spend about a, an hour a week in political education courses. And this is actually pretty equivalent to civics courses or social studies courses within the United States, at least within the state of Indiana. In these primary schools, they learn to sing the national anthem, the flag. They learn about the capital, the founding of the nation, the leadership of the party. And this regiment continues through middle school, through high school, and even into university. And so even as a student is 
completing her PhD, she may still have requirements to attend political or patriotic education courses, that you have to pass these courses in order to advance to candidacy and to defend your dissertation. And so it is extensive within the Chinese political system. Can you talk for a moment about the Gaokao? In a lot of your analysis in chapter in the OUP volume, you're quoting a lot from the Gaokao. And I actually didn't know how much politics was in the Gaokao. I had assumed it was a bit more technocratic, but that actually is quite interesting as it relates to your, to your argument. I think most folks are familiar with the Gaokao at a very superficial level, but could you just offer a few sentences on the Gaokao? And then just briefly, how much politics was is in the Gaokao, because I think that was really surprising to me. So the Gaokao is the National College Entrance Exam. It's, it's offered every summer in China. And is essentially, this is the, the test that all students in China need to take and pass or get the highest scores to matriculate into universities within China. It is a formidable exam, spans two days, and covers a variety of subjects, mathematics, Chinese, foreign languages, history, biology, chemistry, and, of course, politics. It's been in place since the 1950s. And the variety of questions on it in terms of political questions, it, it tests essentially political knowledge. The materials that are coming out of political education courses from primary school all, all through high school, and then it essentially functions as the gatekeeper of higher education within China. So highest scores are rewarded with access to the best universities. So it's still the, the main path of sort of upward social mobility within China. How often is the curriculum changed? I mean, questions that we were seeing on the 1952 version, are these likely to be around on the existing versions or is it refreshed and updated frequently? The questions change every year, but the broad curriculum for political education, usually once every decade, we see a, a major revision. And so 2003, there was a major revision. There was a, a major one in 2008 as well. And these are kind of broad changes where we see an expansion of political education in terms of kind of moving away from only ideology to an expansion of additional themes. So more emphasis on economics. Um, the most recent expansion, we saw a new branch of political education focusing on cultural life, sort of traditional Chinese values, traditional culture, which was definitely not present in political education within the 1950s and 1960s. And so the curriculum has adapted and innovated over time. And then the Gaokao questions specifically reflect those changes, as well as they ask current event questions. They ask a whole variety of, of, of types of questions. Just, just to give a small flavor here, you've got a question six in the 1952 version is old China was a blank and blank society whose ruling class at the time was blank, blank, and blank. Of course, as everyone knows, the just kidding, the correct <laughs> answers are semi-colonial and semi-feudal. And for the three blanks, it's imperialist, feudal, and bureaucratic, bourgeois. I think this is a good point to talk about modern shifts or inflection points. And of course, the big traumatic event for the Communist Party, I think when it began to feel like it had, it had really lost a whole generation of young Chinese was June 4th, 1989. And you quote in the paper from that June 9th speech that Deng Xiaoping gave. So this is just mere days after the crackdown. And as Deng is making an early you know, first draft diagnosis of, of what went wrong. It's interesting what he defines as the biggest mistake that they've made over the past decade. And, and I'll read the full quote. Dung says, during the last 10 years, our biggest mistake was made in the field of education, primarily in ideological and political education, not just of students, but of people in general. 
We didn't tell them enough about the need for hard struggle and what China was like in the old days and what kind of country it had become. This was a serious error on our part. So there's an explosion of patriotic education efforts in the aftermath of 1989. But I, I wanted to just ask for your own analysis of the impact or import that 1989 had and what feels different or what was different about patriotic education attempts subsequent to, to June 4th, 1989. So one of the interesting things about patriotic education following June 4th and, and 1989 is we see, as, as you said, this broad, extensive campaign. So it's not only using schools as sort of these key arenas of socializing young people and teaching them political knowledge, but it's also an expansion outside of schools. So a, a reimagining of extracurricular activities. We see a directed effort on building patriotic museums, an emphasis on red tourism. And so all across China, you see these museums popping up up in every single province, which are drawing on sort of foundational moments of communist history or various leaders. And these patriotic museums then become folded in in some ways to patriotic education. So teachers in grade schools are encouraged and in some cases required to take their classes to the nearest patriotic museum. And of course, it's all of this is free and it's, an, you know, the children love it. It's an opportunity to get outside of the classroom, but it's moving patriotic education in a really extensive way beyond schools in particular. The second thing that I, I think we see in, in 1989 is a reimagining of, of the content of political and patriotic education within China. So in the first few years, in the early 90s, we see the content is particularly on the Gaokao exam, lots of questions are returned to ideology. So asking young people, testing young people on this exam making sure that they have a good grounding in Marxism, Leninism, Maoism in particular. And that was a, a really dramatic change from the 1980s. In the late 1980s, we see questions in ideology on the exam actually becoming less and less important. There's also a shift in questions on rule of law, which is not that surprising after the student uprising, framing the, the student movement as a counter-revolutionary rebellion on the exam and reminding young people that they need to follow the constitution, they need to obey the party and sort of follow the law in particular. And sort of fast forward to contemporary China today, it, in some ways we can see these same overtures being directed at at Hong Kong, in particular, that the party has looked at Hong Kong and, and this idea that young people in, raised within the Hong Kong system or socialized within a, a civic education rather than a patriotic education, they don't understand what old China was like. They don't understand what the Communist Party has delivered in terms of prosperity and stability. And so there's been a, a new push to encourage greater patriotic education within Hong Kong schools as well. Yeah, it seems like it's the authoritarian equivalent of you know, kids these days don't understand we walked, you know, uphill both ways to school when, when we were younger. Of course, the underlying thrust behind all of this is is Beijing, well, and, and Moscow, but we're focused on Beijing here, clearly thinks this works. And so I wanted to spend really the last chunk of time here exploring what does that mean for this to work? And I, I'm glad you brought up the example of Hong Kong, because as we look at the toolkit that Beijing feels like it needs to bring to bear to pacify Hong Kong, it's interesting that patriotic education is a critical component of this, which therefore I think leads to the conclusion that they find this an effective tool to pacify, socialize citizens or, or individuals who fall under, under under Chinese rule. So as a first question, what do we know about how Beijing thinks about efficacy or effectiveness of this? We were talking about 
just before we, we clicked record, I had told a story of of a someone I interviewed for some of my own research who was sent for mandatory military training after June 4th down to Shijiazhuang instead of entering into freshman year at Beida. And when I asked him what the long-term repercussions of that dreary year of military training was, he said that this basically instilled an anti-authoritarian sentiment in him because Beijing had you know, this this was his one dream to enter Beida, and it was now delayed for a year, which at the age of 18 is, is an eternity. So there can be unanticipated consequences here. So I want to know how Beijing thinks about this and how it might measure this. That's a great question. So in some ways, we think that, you know, we can say the regime believes it works. If they thought it didn't work, they wouldn't invest and continue to invest the millions, if not billions of dollars in it. We can also say within in democracies, the scholars who study civics within democracies have shown really strong associations. So young people who are exposed to civics classes, the longer you've been exposed to civic education, the more likely you are to join a political party, to vote, to volunteer within your communities. So if we can imagine that it's working to some extent, at least social science can tell us that it's working to some extent within democracies, we can imagine those same dynamics might be taking place within autocracies. So the regime is heavily going to invest in it, and I believe they they continue to think it works. My own research, doing interviews with students and teachers, as well as some drawing on scholarship of other um, other colleagues, is that it, it's far more complicated story than saying, yes, it absolutely works. When I have interviewed students about these political education courses, and their experience. First of all, these are not terribly popular classes. Uh, the the students are are there because it is required. They're not there by choice. And in in some cases, students have told wonderful kind of stories. If if there's 50 students in the class and they're required to show up, they would kind of designate the note taker to one or two students each week. And the rest of the students would essentially use that class period as a study hall to focus to get their other work done to finish you know finish their other homework projects where the two other students would be responsible. So they're not terribly popular classes. And most of the students I've interviewed have, have said, we think of this as kind of indoctrination in the, in the way that they are sophisticated enough to understand what they view as propaganda versus what as they view it as persuasion. At the same time, there's been some very interesting research done on textbook and changes in the national curriculum of political education over time and, and the broader implications of this. And what does this mean from young people who were sort of socialized under the old system versus the new system? And in terms of how we can see political education playing out as the curriculum has changed in, in such a way of being much more patriotic, much more pro-China. And this again is one of the core themes of trying to encourage young people to not only to love their country, but to be proud of their country. This is something after 1980 we see a shift in political education. And so we think of pride in China, and survey has shown us that young people tend to be much more nationalistic after they've been exposed to this curriculum. And they also see greater pride in what not only the party has delivered, but also the accomplishments of the Chinese nation. But to go back to, to something you said, Jude, of the unexpected or the unintended consequences of political education, I think in some ways that there are unintended un- un- consequences, just as your colleagues was resentful for having to spend 
and rather that his first year at, at university, for first year in essentially military boot camp. You know, students exposed to this, um, political education is, is also present in, in, in religious seminaries. And so the three self-patriotic seminaries, but also the Catholic seminaries, these are required courses. And, and research has shown that the priests and pastors, they also have the same experience as your friend, that this is an unnecessary course and it's creating resentment against the party. And so the idea is that it's, it's not necessarily doing precisely what the regime is hoping for it to do. It is, it is creating, in some ways, resentment, and that would be an unexpected consequence. I was just thinking as you were talking about this, that is there any extent to which a suboptimal patriotic education curriculum is present and is pushed not because they're necessarily blind to the shortcomings of it, but essentially a kind of a crowding out theory that something's going to be on the curriculum. And if you leave this space open for autonomy, you might get some infiltration of ideas that are even more suboptimal to them. So this is just about kind of controlling the narrative space with something that's, even if they understand it's not particularly engaging for students, better to have them sitting and listening to Marxism, Leninism, or stories about the CCP lifting everyone out of poverty, then leaving autonomy and a void there that could be filled with other narratives. I, does that resonate at all? I'm, I'm just making that up, so there's a good chance that that's total BS. But um, it seems to me, I, I think of this in other areas where we have these discussions on, you know, quote, nobody believes the party's ideology anymore. And I wonder if that's the right way to always look at this, that some extent of this is, you know, the party recognizes its civil society can be a dangerous thing, especially when technologically enabled. If you just let it to, to run free like a wild field, you get all sorts of species, invasive species, all sorts of grasses and animals. So better to torch it, curate it, even if that means you've got some amount of rote pretending to, to believe in this. Is there anything there in that? Absolutely. In terms of the, the state trying to fill the narrative, they not only want to fill the narrative, but they want to control the narrative. And they're actively trying to reshape the narrative in certain ways. And so it's not just filling space, sort of indoctrinating students with dialectical Marxism or dialectical materialism and class struggle. Those were common themes in the 1950s and 1960s. They still play some role on the exam, but that is not the dominant narrative. Now there's a, a combination of questions on economics, sophisticated questions on economics, political institutions, current events, and China's broader role and you could think of global impact or as a global influencer. Is the party leading China forward and shaping and engaging a much more international and global environment? So it's filling the narrative in a much more sophisticated and subtle way that is pro-China, so you know, patriotic or nationalistic. As you said, China lifting up lifting up people out of poverty. But also there's another, you could say a secondary narrative about China's superiority compared to other alternatives, whether that's Western forms of capitalism or liberal Western forms of democracy. And so how China has delivered democratic prosperity, Chinese form of democracy, socialist democracy is responsive and representative, where Western democracy is corrupt and favors the wealthy. And so as much as it's building up China, there's also a strong undercurrent of how these alternative political systems are damaged, that they are inferior, and that they're not going to work within the Chinese context. Yeah, and that very much 
overlaps now with a very strong overt effort by Beijing, probably made easier by the manifest deficiencies or shortcomings that we've shown in the United States over the past 12 to 18 months in terms of basic governance capacity. So I wanted to ask you a big zoom out speculative so what question, which is, who cares about all of this? How does this practically manifest itself in a way that would be of interest or, or matter to, to the U.S. public? Is this shifting how the Chinese state behaves? Is this raising expectations that Chinese citizens may have about the performance nature or, or legitimacy of Beijing in its own governance capacity? What is the big so what question to you about, about why this matters? I think there are many sort of big takeaways from, from this project, which are relevant for folks living in democracies. I think number one is that it, in some cases it is raising expectations. When we think about the political knowledge that the state is transmitting, this is the political knowledge is one is that the China model works or the authoritarian model works. The subtle undercurrent is the democratic model does not. That is a flawed one. And we think about more than half of the population of the globe are living under autocracies. And if they're being socialized in such a way of thinking human rights, freedom of speech, freedom of association, these things are less desirable to stability and order. And that this autocratic model can bring stability and order and prosperity. And these other concerns are less important. I think that's important when we think about sort of democracy promotion, but also democracy backsliding and the rise of very influential influential autocratic regimes such as China, such as Russia. I think it's also helpful in thinking about what are the persuasive tools of how regimes, democracies and dictatorships, how do, how do they try to shape and sharpen public opinion? And we know within a democratic political system that students who have experience in civics education courses tend to be more responsible democratic citizens. They're engaged in their communities, they vote. And if we think of it again about the flip side of civics within autocracies, young people are, are exposed to far more political or patriotic education than, you know, students within Western democracies are exposed to civics. And so we can think about that lasting impact in terms of diminishing demand for sort of liberal forms of democracy or, or human rights and, and also propping up autocratic regimes. I think those are the, the sort of the big so what questions. Well, those are those are sufficiently big and so what. So that, that was that was really great. Carrie, I want to thank you. This is really, really fascinating topic. One that I think as we are all scratching our head trying to understand where China is headed. And certainly under the Xi Jinping administration, what are the what are the new and emerging political realities that will shape China's behavior? And this question of just how Chinese citizens are responding to global shifts and domestic shifts, this is an important space to watch. So I'm very much looking forward to your book. I know it, it still it needs a, a, some time and, and thought space to get it done, but I, I think it's really going to be a, a really important contribution to how we think about how authoritarian systems are, are adapting and surviving in, in the 21st century. So I want to thank you very much for your time. This was a really great discussion. Thank you, Jude. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 